I'm Jason Klom, and this is the Comedy on Vinyl podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Jason Klom, your host, uh, with me this week to talk comedy on vinyl, to talk his own career, to talk all kinds of things, is Neil Innes. Thank you so much for talking to me today. Hello, Jason, and hello, all your listener. <laughs> <laughs> You're not wrong. Um, no. No, no, I, I, I firmly believe there's only one person listening at a time. <laughs> They're very dedicated. They've set out a schedule so that nobody interrupts the other. It's I appreciate that. They're very nice people, my, my listeners. Um, do you, so I, I want to get started wherever you want to start. But, I mean, so in, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, I mean, it would be weird to start here and not know. But, I mean, I'll just name the things that you're probably best known for. And that would be the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band, working with Monty Python, the Ruddles. There's a million other things, though. And I, your, your solo career is is also wonderful. And, and your music and, and comedy is great to listen to. But I want to start wherever makes the most sense for you. But at the very least, the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band was notorious for, hey, we collect a bunch of weird, obscure comedy records. And then we either cover them or get heavily influenced by them. That's a very good in, Jason, because, I mean, the Bonzos uh, collectively delighted in finding old wind-up gramophone records, 78s, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and we only looked for the comedy ones, um, the, the most extraordinary titles, you know, because we, we saw them in junk shops and, and, and street markets, and the only thing you could go by is what was on the label. Yeah. And the sillier the title, the more obvious it became. You had to part with a penny or tuppence to buy these. Right. But you couldn't hear them until you got home. But um, we found such treasures, you know, like uh, the stalkers brought a son and daughter to Mr. and Mrs. Mickey Mouse, <laughs> uh, hunting tigers out in India. I'm going to bring a watermelon to my uh, girl tonight. <laughs> Alibaba's camel. They're, they're, all the early stuff, we, we, we all found them. And if they were funny enough, um, not on vinyl, but on, um, golly, what, shellac or whatever it was called. Right. Um, it, was, uh, it was just sound. And so the silly of the song, the silly of the title, we liked it and learnt it. Right. Yeah. See, I, I actually have, because I've been doing a little bit of digging and some research in terms of the old stuff you could find, did you ever stumble across anything that was comedy but not music? I can't imagine that happened. We weren't really looking for that. But sure. I mean, um, later on, you know, I, I, I dug out, I found some treasures. There were the, what was it called? I had an American history of radio theme tunes. Oh. Uh, an album of it. And that was wonderful. And, and uh, there were people like, um, I heard Henny Youngman. Sure. Uh, um <laughs> Sorry, it's just it makes me laugh just thinking of it. You know, he master of the one liner, you know. Yeah. Talking about I checked into my hotel room, the room was so small I closed the door and the doorknob got in bed with me, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> uh -huh. And um and there was another thing, I don't know, this goes way back and I can't remember their names, but there was uh, kind of a couple of hillbillies and a and a guy that, you know, the, well the wife was saying, Paul, get up. Our woodshed is on fire. 
<laughs> and he'd, he'd say, quiet, Ma, I'm praying for rain. You know, and, and it was so <laughs> slow. And there was another sketch that somebody did said, well, on today's program, we have the so-and-so uh, and so-and-so, the president of the Society for Speaking Very Slowly. What made you start the uh, Society for Speaking Very Slowly? You know, well... I started, you know, and, and it's, it was painful. The tension was wonderful. Of course. So, yeah, I'm a big fan of uh, non-musical comedy on vinyl, too. Right. Oh, man. I, I love it. The thing is, you're also, I'm, there are plenty of collectors now of 78s who, you know, they have these, these incredibly inclusive lists that have as much stuff that, as they've ever found. I, I do wonder if, when you were originally shopping for records, if there's some stuff that might have died out because i mean you know you're you were shopping 40 years after some of this stuff was made and now it's it's a full several decades later and uh yeah. i want I, I do wonder if there's any stuff that you guys found that just is no longer even available i'm sure just got there i'm sure been. But, you see you, you're not talking to an archivist <laughs> right I, just, <clears throat> I never kept this we found them and we consumed them you know yeah we played them Home and then said, "We well, listen to this, you know." We, and uh, we said, "Well, yes, we've got to learn that one." And, and we did it. And we just once we'd learned it, we'd almost never played the record again because it changed by the time we'd finished mucking about with it. Right. What? Uh, so you know, we weren't historians or um, you know curators of uh, past art, but you know we we consumed it because we found that you know being young in the sixties. And looking back 40 years, um, most of these songs, these came from, uh, you know, just after the First World War and, and, right. and the Great Depression in 1928. And people were still being funny, you know. And and I think we all related to the human scale of it, a bit like Laurel and Hardy. Well, you know, my grandchildren love Laurel and Hardy. You know, that, that it goes on. It's human scale. Yeah. And um, and I think that's what attracted us to the to this sort of stuff in the first place. What so when you're collecting this stuff, I mean, as a group, uh, actually, what let, let's 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 go back a couple of years. Let's let's start first when you were a, a little kid. What what kind of what kind of comedy was there in the house, if there was any, including comedy music? Was there any of this kind of stuff that you eventually sought out when you were in your twenties? Well, as a, as a little kid, I mean, everyone grew up with kind of children's hour music, and there was a, a chap called Uncle Mac who used to play records for children, including the Teddy Bear's Picnic and things like that. But uh -huh. he also played um, Lead Belly and Muddy Waters, and that's where Eric Clapton oh, wow. first heard, you know? So there was a kind of a, a great variety of stuff being played for children. Mm -hmm. And as a toddler, I had memories of um, conducting the radio at bedtime with a little ruler huh. um, to, to, to not uh, to, to delay being put to bed. But I've always loved music, and it's funny. I, I recently discovered um, a CD of Joseph Locke, the Irish tenor, and because um, I'd seen the film uh, "Hear My Song," uh, which was about him. Uh -huh. And we, and we, we, we found this CD and ordered it. And there's a thing, um, it is, hear my song, Violetta, in my gondola. And I can still remember as a child the string arrangement 
da, 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 da. you know and it's funny how these things just stick that's amazing i i love how so how old were you do you think when you were listening to that like very tiny five six seven Three, three. Oh my God! See, this is yeah. well. I mean, you say that now. I, I act surprised, and then I realize, like my first, my first love was when I was three and fell in love with Cindy Lauper's voice because that was one of the first voices I heard on the radio. So it's not dissimilar, although it's a little less sophisticated because you were conducting a whole orchestra. But you know, <laughs> it's basically <clears throat> the same concept. That stuff does you, stick it, with you. The, you know, my, Cindy Lauper's voice. You're talking about a singing voice, right? yes. Yeah, because her speaking voice is a bit like singing in the rain. That's so different. It's so different. <laughs> and I, I, to, to my eternal shame, I, I met the lovely lady at um, Ruttles video shoot in New York. And she, and she sort of came up and spoke to me. And I said, Cindy, why the funny voice? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I can I can make a real gaff if I, if I have a mind to. <laughs> I tell you what, she does do disdain very well. She gave me a look. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. Oh, that's amazing. So when you were so the Bonzos got together in art school, correct? Yeah, all the different art schools in London, which was kind of amazing. But we we had a meeting point, which is the Royal College of Art up in Kensington. And in the canteen is where up to 14 or 15 of us would play this stuff with enthusiasm and not necessarily much proficiency. <laughs> but we all shared the joke. We just like this sort of uh, this silly old stuff of these people. You know, it's probably hard to remember. But I mean, when I was sort of a teenager, we, we were, we'd grown up with parents who'd been through a, a world war. Yeah. And we felt sort of duty bound to try and cheer them up a bit <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know but it was a time it was an interesting time because um after such a horrendous period um you know everybody seemed to want to make the world a better place yeah and these oh, these songs from just after the first world war were obviously trying to do that you know yeah as well so i mean it was in that spirit of optimism as a young person that we, we giggled at the stuff from the past. No doubt people, young people today, are giggling at the stuff from the 60s. Sure. Yeah, no, I mean, that's absolutely true. I mean, there, there are plenty of people who are um, going to take what's given to them in the past and be like, okay, well, we've clearly moved beyond this. But then there are weird, uh, there, for lack of a better, weird nerds every every born every year that that like this stuff from your years previous so do you think that's specifically what it was i mean because i mean some of the stuff that you were covering was from the 20s so well before that so was that because oh this is stuff our parents listened to maybe it was in the house it's similar to stuff that was in the house because there's also plenty of people from from your generation who had complete and utter disdain for for wartime stuff for austerity who who really 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 wanted to crap on it understandably i think yeah, yeah, but I mean, um, well, my mother, for example, wore a headscarf because the Queen did. Really? You know, I mean, they really needed. You know, they they'd been they didn't have any counselling for what they went through. Sure. Um, and so, yeah, there, there was a kind of we are the younger generation. We we want to sort of you know make the world a better place kind of feeling. Mm -hmm. But. Uh, uh, you don't really know that much at 20-something or whatever. But it, it, I think your heart's in the right place. And, and a, a lot of us felt the same. And I think that's what happens. You know, you know young people 
tend to sort of group together, birds of a feather, and uh, try and make the changes they they, they want to make. You know, yeah. that's the ones who want to make changes. <laughs> right, right. There. What's so funny is I, I keep wanting to bring up a certain brand of. I don't even know where to where to go with this, but except to say that I'm not even sure how to bring this up because it's very it's not that obscure. It's quite right in front of you. But in the late 60s and the early 70s, there did seem to be this interesting sudden callback to um, it was weird. It was kind of a reflection of sometimes uh, Victorian stuff, but definitely the 20s. So bringing back jazz, bringing back deco art sort of kind of the style even of yellow submarine and then the cover of which we will get to the cover of the art for uh the winchester cathedral album uh things like that there's a weird uh, and i there's probably a term for it i don't know enough about art history to know what this weird retro period of the 60s was but well it, it, yeah it, it, people kind of realized that nostalgia was not what it used to be you know <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, um now that you've got to remember that the shops were full of old Victorian stuff and military uniforms and things like that. Mm-hmm. We were surrounded by the detritus of, you know, strife and and various things. And it was fun to sort of dress up in this stuff and go to parties and things. I remember once we played, the Bonzos played at the Savile Theatre with Cream. And um, I bought, you know, because we had Carnaby Street in London, mm-hmm. and I pair of flared trousers that were made out of floral material that uh-huh. you normally cut armchairs with. And and I bought a red military tunic. And for the sake of one joke, you know, I, I wore the tunic and the flower power trousers. And I said, what do you think of the outfit? I call it war and peace. <laughs> you know? so it wasn't any reverence or something. It right. was, you know, we were hell-bent on having a good time. Yeah. You know, and trying you know, and trying to lighten the thing and sort of see, well, where, what's it, what is the world and where are we going with it? And we had lots of criticism. You know, we haven't got time to go into all the sort of absurdities of, you know, prolonging the Vietnam War and things like that. But demonstrations to get it were, were very, very active and everything, like, even in London, you know. Mm-hmm. So, so it, 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 it's a hard one to get your head round to sort of um, talk in, you know, simple terms to people that didn't go through it, in a way. For sure. But um, it, it, it was obvious at the time that all this stuff was around, and it was bound to filter into popular music as well. Yeah. You know, in well, yes, you're right. You know, Winchester Cathedral was a kind of 20s kind of retro thing without being authentic. Right. But it had that... Um, that kind of whiff, if you like, of nostalgia. Mm-hmm. Well, I, that's one of those things I think I grew up loving and then sort of slowly... Again, it's very weird to be... At that point when I was listening to it, it was retro to listen to it, but um, I'm overusing that word right now. But once I realized how much of that had kind of been co-opted from the Bonzos from yourself i was like oh boy I'm, I'm not sure how much i like this anymore because you i don't know were you the first group pulling this together uh, you know that that kind of a no. style of music no no not in not at all um they're very popular in fact they were number one in the charts when i was sort of just about to leave school there's a band called the temperance seven okay and they had a hit with a thing called pasadena and it was played beautifully, 
and, mm. and and people well, enough people liked it to make it number one in the days where they you know sold records in in volume. Mm -hmm. um, so there was that, but there was also an outfit called the Alberts, and they had a long running theatre thing in London called an Evening of British Rubbish, <laughs> and they, they just had fun. The the Grey Brothers, uh, Dougie used to play the bagpipes, wearing a kilt and full Highland stuff. And marching up, playing and marching up and down on the spot, while behind him was like an eight-foot cylinder that was slowly revolving with a painting of the Highlands. Oh my God! So, so it looked as though you know he was walking along through the Highlands. And uh, Bruce Lacey, who was an artist and sort of uh, he he just made stupid things. He made robots and uh, fired himself out of a cannon. Well, he got into a cannon, the awful explosion, and a dummy was catapulted. <laughs> You know, it was that kind of thing, and then we also, you know, grew up with the Goon Show on the radio, sure. which um, you know influenced everyone in Monty Python as well. You know, yeah, uh, stupid jokes like you know, there'd be some sort of adventure going on, and somebody would be saying, "Oh, Lord, the sun is hot," you know, and someone would say, "Well, don't touch it," you know, <laughs> and. And they've done the silly voices of uh, Peter Sellers, you know, going, uh, mean, the cat wants to go out. How do you know? It's got its coat on. You know, it's all written by the wonderful Spike Milligan. Yeah. Again, you can't, you can't really value or assess what, what drove them to do this other than they'd been through the war, you know. Yeah. Mike was, was shell-shocked mm -hmm. and for the rest of his life he, he was sort of almost bipolar, you know, up and mm -hmm. down with depression. In fact, on, on his gravestone, I think it says, you know, I told you I was ill. <laughs> oh, my God. You know, I mean, I think this is something that, I don't know, the, the American perspective on what happened after the war is so we were so obsessed with prosperity and with pretending things were okay i mean i think a lot of people were but I, I i'm trying to figure out why our comedy wasn't the same as english comedy was and i think it's probably just you were there from the beginning of the war you had to you know and i mean it, it's you were there suffering yeah. it and you were they were facing actual annihilation and i think that that must be the biggest difference the bombs did drop absolutely yeah. and um yeah it, it's i uh, broadest historical strokes i suppose you could say that britain um not invented but certainly was at the front of the industrial revolution mm -hmm. whereas in america i think they they were the, in the front of the uh, consumer society right you know because that's what took over and uh, I, find, I find it all fascinating, you know, the whole 20th century turmoil, you know, and where we are now is equally, you know, disturbing. Mm -hmm. But um, in amongst all this, people are people, and they look for comedy, and they look for um, a collective narrative, he said pompously. But you've got to share, <laughs> the, share the same experience, you know. And, and, and these... these when it's, it's hard, but yeah, popular music, you know, was still like, you know, the oral tradition of, you know, songs had to rhyme and, and melodies were memorable, but it had that air of, you know, people being people sitting around the campfire, maybe in a bomb shelter, but whatever, but together, 
you know, sharing an experience and 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 if <laughs> the risk of being pompous again to analysing comedy, you, it's either funny or it isn't, and uh, and it depends on the shared experience. And uh, and that's that's a human thing, you know. That's why Laurel and Hardy lost today because we've all been there, you know, right? Somewhere. Oh God, yeah. It, uh, you know, don't don't worry too much about being uh, pretentious. That's kind of our meat and potatoes oh, here. That's kind of what we do. Yeah. yeah, believe me, we're we're talking we talk about this stuff all the time. And I I, I would dig deeper into, you know, the the uh you know how shell shock you know created an entire culture. But that's not as lighthearted as we'd like to be, I guess. Um, no, no, but I, I don't think you know. It's... There's a, there's a certain wisdom to not analyzing too much. For sure. Yeah. And uh, that, that's why, you know, I'm afraid I, uh, you know, having collected these things and enjoyed them, mm -hmm. I must, you know, underline that it, they were consumed mm -hmm. and more things were looked forward to. I mean, we were consuming in the same way that I suppose Americans were consuming. Um, but it, it it was mostly traditional jazz played in pubs, even when I was first an art student. Uh -huh. And slowly, you know, Bill Haley, well, Bill Haley came out, and and Chuck Berry was around, and um, and then you know the the Beatles happened, right? And um, uh, that changed everything, and uh, it became uh, a kind of an identifying. Um, social glue almost that popular music would take on the issues of the day and but also you know have fun with it i mean there were also appalling records in the charts as well uh -huh. um, something called granddad with a lot of children singing you know <laughs> so you know, <laughs> variety being the spice of life i think but yeah you know, i i was more attracted to the stuff that just made you laugh and stuff that made you think I've always been like that, I think. Do you, uh, let's go back to the Beatles a moment, because, I mean, if, just a quick, very cursory look at your discography, uh, the Bonzos released their first album in 67, and it is very much its own thing, and it's nice that that, that, that holds together, and that it is very much its own thing. It's not a very 67 thing in my head. So... No. So the Beatles are coming along. You you just acknowledge that they changed everything, which implies that it must have changed things for you. What were the Beatles to you when that happened? I'm curious, like what that felt, because you are a contemporary of the Beatles and of Python. So I'm curious what then happens in your brain. Well, um, again, you know, I'm not a fan of un analyzing what happens <laughs> in the brain, but but it's kind of the the circumstances are. You know, something not in my control, or, or something that I uh, thought that well, this would be a good idea to do this. Having waded up and made a judgment, the Bonzos. Um, if I may, let me go back to the Winchester Cathedral thing because please, yeah, we were we were happy going out and playing in in the kind of nightclubs and things like that, and the universities our old stuff, you know, the stuff that we found on the records. And we had silly suits, double-breasted suits and horrible ties, two-tone shoes. And being art students, we, we made things, you know, we had sort of big comic speaking balloons made out of kind of a board that we'd hold up and, and it would be, wow, I'm really expressing myself on it. You know? <laughs> and this was going down really well. And our trumpeter at the time, a chap called Bob Kerr, now, Bob Kerr knew um, 
the chap who did Winchester Cathedral. Uh-huh. Um, name escapes me at the moment. But, um, and he, he'd made Winchester Cathedral with a bunch of session men. And it was a runaway hit. And yeah. he hadn't got a band to promote it. So he knew Bob Kerr, and he rang Bob Kerr when we were out on the road, saying, you know, you're with this silly band. How would you like to become the new vaudeville band? Yeah. And and Bob finished the phone call, came rushing into where we were, and said, we could be the new vaudeville band. We could be on top of the pops. And the rest of us just looked at him and went, why? <laughs> <laughs> And so he said, well, I'm going to do it. So we said, well, off you go then. Go, never darken our towels again. <laughs> and, um, but the next thing we know is they're on television, top of the pops, um, dressed exactly as we were with a singer in a gold army suit uh-huh. and holding up speaking balloons. And everywhere we went, people said, you're like that new vaudeville band. Oh. And so it's a bit like P.G. Woodhouse suddenly realising having told a go-between on a train between New York and L.A., the plot of a film to to to, to give to Bill, um, what's his name, um, W.C. Fields, uh-huh. and had sold it as his idea. And P.G. <laughs> Woodhouse said, all of a sudden we realised we were in show business. <laughs> but that was that was it, you know, we felt, you know, but I think Legs Larry Smith, the drummer, said, well, why don't, why don't we just write our own stuff? Mm-hmm. And so we did, and that's how Gorilla evolved. We started writing songs, um, listening, having a little poke, if you like, what was going on around us, mm-hmm. and that's how Gorilla came about. And and the Beatles, um, like a good laugh, uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, and we, you know, and when um, we 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 knew uh, Mike McCartney and. The scaffold, you know, Roger McGough. Oh yes, sure. Uh, whatnot, kept bunching them, and it was Mike who suggested to Paul, "Why don't you put the Bonzos in Magical Mystery Tour?" And uh, he said, "Yeah, good idea." Because we again, I mentioned the Savile Theatre before, but in the days that the Beatles used to go out with false beards and things like that, <laughs> they used to come, they used to come and see us. Um, and, but we never met until the uh, Magical Mystery Tour thing. But we, we just clicked, you know, with a bunch of people who have been in a van and gone out on stage as a camaraderie, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, so we just sort of laughed at the same things. And, um, and George thought that uh, one of the tracks, Death Cab for Cutie, should be a single. And I said, oh, come on, George, that'll never get anywhere, you know. <laughs> but... We, we kind of befriend, we, we clicked anyway. And later on, Paul came along and produced uh, Urban Spaceman for us because, um, you know, we had a producer who produced Gorilla, you know, in, in his own way. But he had this wacky um, idea that nobody took more than three hours to make a track. Oh, shoot. Uh, <laughs> I know. And we had all these ideas we wanted to try. So that's why one oh. of the tracks on Gorilla which is one of my favourites to this day. It's called Jazz Delicious Hot Disgusting Cold. Yeah. And it was a Dada kind of track. And uh-huh. we, we knew the, the 32 bar sequence and we said B flat and we swapped instruments. They, you know, the rhythm section stayed the same. Uh, but Rodney played the trombone for the first time in his life and Viv <laughs> picked up a trumpet again for the first time in his life. It was a, a terrible thing because it became so attached to it. We only had two speeds on and off, you know, but um, the, but that that track was going to be one take. 
whatever. And the whole thing took 12 minutes or something like that, which gave us nearly three hours to sort of work on some of the other ones. Uh-huh. But uh, I'm, I'm blathering on, but I mean, no, no, no. this is one. We, the record company were demanding we did a single. We said, why should we do a single? Everyone does singles. You know, we do what we do. And they said, well, we're going to... And, and anyway, I, I ended up... I wrote Urban Spaceman and and I played it to Viv and he said, too many verses. And I said, yes, you're right. So cut the verses down. It, it, it looked like it could be a single. And... Um, and Viv used to hang out in a place called the Speakeasy, drinking, and he got to know Paul quite well, and John. Um, but he was moaning about the fact that, you know, we had to make a single. <laughs> and our manager, producer, had this idea that you only took three hours, you know. And, um, and that's when Paul said, well, I'll produce it if you like. He said, really? Yes. Yes, no problem, you know. So we went back to a management producer saying, well, all right, we'll make the single, but we don't want you to produce it. And, that's it. and he fell right into it and said, oh, and who do you think you're going to get? <laughs> Pause. And said, well, Paul McCartney says he'll do it. You know? So that was it. And uh, it took eight and a half hours. I mean, I could go on about this because it was such a funny day. God, um, we're fascinating. all uh, waiting. Um, and Paul came in and uh, said, hello, 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 everybody. He was a magic man in those days. Uh-huh. And and the big grand piano was in the studio in the corner. He went over to it. He said, I've just written this. And he started playing Hey Jude. Uh-huh. And no one had heard it. I don't know if, if even the Beatles had heard it. He'd probably written it the night before. But anyway, he, there was a grand piano. He wanted to play again. So I, I was wetting myself, thinking, well, this is really going to wind up, you know, the producer, <laughs> you know, because he's playing this dirge that's going on for <laughs> on, on and on, and it's just really wasting studio time. But uh, anyway, we got on, on with it, and um, he double-tacked the drums, and, it, and it just, the track just came to life. He played ukulele on it. The producer's wife, who never came to recordings, uh, came to this one. And um, she was a rather posh lady, and she went up to him with he was playing Vivian Stanshaw's ukulele. He's left-handed as well. Uh-huh. And, and she said to him, "Oh, what have you got there? Poor man's violin." <laughs> and, Paul, and Paul immediately said, "No, it's a rich man's ukulele." <laughs> you know. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. And he he, he he goes uncredited on that, right? Or credited as someone else on Earth? Uh, yeah, well, this is where we, you know, the cruelty, extreme cruelty. We said to the manager, who's obviously thinking, well, at least we've got Paul McCartney's name on the record. And we said, we don't want his name on the record. We don't want success on someone else's coattails. Thank you. And uh, he said, what, what, what? You know, he <laughs> said, well, what do you call him then? And I think someone just piped up, Apollo Siva Muth. And Paul said, yeah, I like that. <laughs> You know, so he's credited as Apollo C. Vermouth. <laughs> Brilliant. Oh. Right at the end, Vivian used to have a length of garden hose and put a trumpet mouthpiece in the end of it and a kind of plastic funnel in the other. And he said, I'd rather like to play my garden hose. And Paul said, yes, all right, why not? And the engineer looked at it and said, you can't record that thing. And Paul said, yeah, you can. Just put a microphone in each corner because he used to whirl it around his head. <laughs> I mean, talk about comedy on vinyl, though. I mean, if you could have seen that, you know, the Marx Brothers would have been proud of it. <laughs> I love so much. I mean, there are a million little examples in the, in in the last couple stories you told of, 
you guys legitimately sticking to your guns, which, you know, that's maybe that's the hallmark of being in your 20s and having a little bit of a success and having an idea of what you want to do. But I mean, it still takes guts. Well, we didn't know anything else to do. You know, we thought everyone else is doing this sort of thing. And we thought what we were doing was working with people when we went out and played live. And so what, why should we go the way the other groups went? You know, they looked at, listened to this and listened to that, and they tried this and that. Um, fair enough, you know, but we, we, we never wanted to do that. Yeah. It's... Uh, it's just one of those things. I don't. I, it, it just maybe we we'd had several years of art school and you know, art speak and all this rubbish, and we thought, well, let's have a bit of fun. You know, we thought we didn't know how long, but we were actually the highest paid band in the UK wow. without having anything in the charts. That's insane. People just, yeah. So we were doing something right, but I mean. We never bothered, you know. I mean, the, the follow-up single was, was <laughs> I think, because of Hey Jude, we, we did an eight-minute single as well called Mr. Apollo. <laughs> um, but, you know, that, that, was, that was the bonzos. They were unmanageable, and, uh, but we, we, had, we had a lot of t- fun. But, you know, it burnt itself out eventually after five years and uh, three managers um, all paid off. You know, we we sort of thought it was time to have a lie down. That's understandable. Do you? I I'm curious now because there are stories that are told of when you guys were in Magical Mystery Tour that maybe one of the Beatles was less than enthused because he was up his own ass. Um, that that's one of the no, stories. Absolutely, absolutely not true. No. Okay. No. I think well, if you see John, he's looking a bit sort of oh, bored and whatever, but he's a very good actor. That is true. That is true. <laughs> no, but he, he was, that was, that was, he was he, you know, he, he was, um, he, he knew Viv very well. But I mean, when we had the Magical Mystery Party, um, it was kind of a fancy dress party, and Viv had turned up with a yellow plastic mac with plastic fried eggs stuck to it, which <laughs> Paul was absolutely besotted with. But um, John was dressed as a Ted, you know, Teddy boy with, with sort of leather jacket and his hair all greased back. And we people getting up and doing things. And um, we got up to do something. And uh, Larry, thanks Larry Smith, used to come out and tap dance with a pair of false plastic ladies' breasts attached to him. <laughs> and John sitting on the floor said, come on, Larry, show us your tits. We've all seen them, you know. <laughs> And then, then later on, George, I think, played the saxophone and the Beach Boys were up there. We did a 40-minute version of O'Carroll. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, you, you've just brought up something that I kind of wanted to talk about next, which is, was it just in the culture to, to be able to do an impression of John Lennon? Because here's the thing. In the Ruddles, your, your version of John Lennon is, uh, to me, holds up as one of the best versions of him ever. It's... It's 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 fantastic acting on your part, and I, I apologize. I'm not. I, I don't want to no, no, kiss your no, butt. No, but I mean, I, I'm, I've never trained as an actor or anything like that. But I sort of, I've, I've always been good at sort of playing children's games if, as a child. You know, mm-hmm. you throw what would you do? And I just, I don't know. I must have channeled something of it. But I mean, a lot of it was ad libbed and things like that. So. It, it, you know, you get it, if you're trying to think of what he's going to say. Um, I mean, the, the, one of the things just popped into my head just as the camera was turned over, 
you know, you're supposed to talk about the future, and I, I don't know. I just said, I'd like to own a squadron of tanks. <laughs> <laughs> that was ad lived, and uh, the, same, the same with the scene in the bathroom. You know, um, Eric sat there and said, "Why are you doing this?" And there's you know, Gwen Taylor and myself, which is dressed as a Nazi, and I'm got hairy wigs and beards all over the place. <laughs> I said, "Oh, thank you, Eric. What am I going to say?" Well. We're sitting here, getting wet, because basically plumbing is a, an effective um, sewage system. You know, <laughs> civilization is basically a, an effective sewage system, and we hope to, through the use of plumbing, to demonstrate this to the world. <laughs> and I was, I was just going at the end, and Gwen was having a real hard time not to giggle. <laughs> but um, Eric did sort of laugh out loud, and it kind of ruined it. And I had to do it again, but. Um, there was like that, you know. I I just thought it was fun to do, and I and and I did it with from affection as well. Sure, because you know, I'm a, a great admirer of John, and he he took a stand on things. And you could argue that some of the the, the, the lions and things like that, but basically he was parodying advertising campaign, and um, and I and I thought. It, 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 it was necessary to do, yeah. know, but he got a, got a lot of flack for that. As we all know, he he's, he he was he was the real thing. It's it's just amazing to be able to because the Ruddles obviously has Eric Idle's flavor of taking the piss out of everything. However, you do yeah. the the weird thing is that you would think if somebody who's playing John Lennon who some people might look as uh, the main Beatle, whatever, however you want to look at it, but you're playing the equivalent of John Lennon. You many people might do it and not do justice to his sense of humor, but you're playing it in a way you do a bit where he tells a joke and then goes completely straight faced right after it, which is something you see in every old newsreel of the Beatles with John Lennon. He'll yeah. make a joke and then yeah. he'll just stop dead. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and that's just it's a little thing that not a lot of people would catch, I don't think. No, but he was very, very quick witted and, um, yes. and dry that way, you know. And he, he could chuckle and put on a false smile and, and then do a deadpan, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you, uh, what are your, okay, so uh, how did the Ruddles come about? And I apologize, I know this is probably a bit, this has been covered in other places, but not here. We've only talked about how much we love it. So I would actually like to go over the history of it a bit. Well, um, Monty Python were playing Drury Lane. Mm-hmm. Part of their tour, and uh, and Eric asked me into his uh, dressing room one evening. He said, "How do you fancy doing some television?" And I said, "You know, the back of this is that Eric, Michael Palin, Terry Jones, and the Bonzos, and David Jason, Denise Coffey were all in this children's series called Do Not Adjust Your Set.' Yes, which most people would agree was the pre." Precursor to Monty Python. Absolutely. So we worked together, and then said, "Do you fancy doing some some television?" And I said, "I don't really like television all that much, Eric." He said, "Why?" I said, "Well," and and I'm recalling the Bonzo's experience. We turn up, and we were working all the time, and we 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 ad libbed a lot, and, and we never did anything the same way. I said, "And the cameras are always in the wrong place," you know. I said, "I know it's off or, or whatever." And then Eric said something which woke me up, and he said, "Well, well, you can tell the cameras which way to point." And I went, "Really? <laughs> this is 
country, you know, because I'd made a couple of films at art school. And um, so I said, well, tell me more. And, and that, he had his idea for doing Rutland weekend television. And the idea being that uh, Rutland was the smallest county in, in the UK. And therefore, if it had an independent television company, it would have the smallest budgets. And it was pitched to the BBC as a, a reasonably a good idea of um, explaining away cheap television. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, um, uh, and so the BBC commissioned it. And so we, you know, I became part of Rutland Weekend. And, and Eric wrote on his own with Monty Python. The others were all in pairs. And um, uh, so he said, I'll write the skits and you'd come up with some musical ideas you know and and the brief was you know well how can you do things on the cheap as it was done in rutland weekend television and it just popped into my head that um uh we could do a, a parody of a hard day's night because it was black and white sure cheap you know four guys in in uh, uh you know tight trousers and wigs and pointy <laughs> shoes running around a field speeded up and uh, that's really cheap and uh, so I, I had the song and um, we used to meet up at Eric's house and, you know, so what have you got, what have you got? And I, 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 I said, well, how about doing that? And he said, oh, that's great, because I've written a sketch about a documentary maker who's so boring the camera runs away from him. <laughs> so we put those two things together and he linked it out of another thing of a man suffering from love. And, um, and that turned into the, the spoof of Hard Day's Night. And then into the the documentary maker, um, and then, lo and behold, real events were taking place. And and uh, was it Sid Bernstein or something? The promoter, the first brought the Beatles to America. Mm -hmm. He wanted to get them back together again. And was offering offering them twenty million dollars each and oh, a killer right. whale. And Saturday Night Live were running with this joke. You know, and they, they got George Harrison on and <laughs> Lorne Michaels has got a fistful of dollars, uh, $3,000 to be precise, which is the union rate for paying four musicians on Saturday Night Live. And he's waggling it under George's nose and saying, all this going to be yours, George, just get the guys back together. And George is saying, what, all of this for me? And they say, well, no, you, you, you've got to share it with the others, but maybe you don't have to tell Ringo, you know? <laughs> jokes like this and um, anyway it led up to the the fact that um lawn said well we're going to have eric idol host the show because he says he can get the beatles back together for three hundred dollars <laughs> and uh and so knowing that they had this clip from rutland weekend television they they, they they delivered it in such a way well we're sorry to say that eric hasn't got the uh the beatles together it's a bad phone line but <laughs> the ruttles and they showed the ruttles and then people just wrote in and got the joke um and people were sending in albums with beatles crossed out and ruttles written over it. <laughs> it's amazing. just silly bulging mailbags and um so long it took about five minutes to go downstairs and get the budget for as we you know the thing now all you need is cash the story of the prefab four and george was really keen on doing it because of all the Beatles I think he wanted to put the suit in the cupboard and move on and um, and so did John you know but so the he was really instrumental in getting us all sorts of things we've actually got you know footage that was in um, 
anthology. You know, he got it from Apple. And, oh my uh, God! And he 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 taught Mick Jagger and Paul Simon into coming into it and lying through their teeth. You know, <laughs> so it became one of the most fun projects I've ever worked on because everybody knew what to do, and it, it sort of like. I came at a time, I mean, the Beatles were huge. I mean, and hearts were really broken when they broke up. Sure. And people thought, well, what on earth? And so it needed some humor. It needed some comedy. And uh, so I think the Ruttles did that. Well, and I, but from my point of view, I, you know, <laughs> I was sitting there in the office in NBC. I thought, oh gosh, they got the money to make the whole story. And I'm thinking, oh my God. <laughs> and I still, sure enough, they all suddenly looked at me, hey, Neil, do you reckon you can write 20 more Ruttle songs by next Thursday lunchtime? <laughs> and I said, hey, well, I'll try. <laughs> you know, and I didn't have an idea about, about how to go about it. But I, it, I, I got a following wind, and I, I thought, well, I, I, I must not listen to any Beatles songs, and so I didn't. But I tried to remember where I was when certain songs came out, and also because there were certain signposts, like you know, all you need is love, and the, the movies, and sure. you know, the tragical history tour, and all that. So I thought, where, well, where was I? And the hardest ones to write were, in fact, the the kind of early love songs things, you know, when they're channeling little girls or whatever. So I remembered what it was like being at school with girls, you know, because I was fortunate enough to go to a co-educational school. And um, and the importance of things, so like Hold My Hand was, you know, I'm not the kind of guy who likes to play Big Brother, but I've just seen your date outside with, with another, you know. <laughs> so they were quite hard to sort of get into. But the, the more psychedelic ones were just sort of made me, making me giggle, you know, just having a lot of fun with the lyrics of those. But, yeah, I did it. And also the other, the second rule was um, the songs had to work with just a guitar or just a piano. Okay. Because I knew if they worked like that and they didn't have any kind of yawny bits, um we could we could do you know the the production on it, and that's really where the Ruttle, uh, the listening to the Beatles uh, and and George Martin, and and the whole thing that they managed to do, um, and uh, then we listened hard then, and, and John Halsey who played Barry Warm, you know, said I can hear bongos, he said you're right, you're right, you know, and so it was put together with a lot of love and affection. And with, again, with musicians who knew exactly what the joke was and uh, and who did it, and I was Steve James, the engineer, um, said, "Let's let's let's get it as best as the best quality, possible quality recording." So we recorded it on two-inch tape at thirty inches per second. Oh wow! Yeah, and <laughs> the the result we we, we got was. Amazing, but we suddenly realized it's it's not it's sounding too good, right? Because <laughs> the the other stuff was done on four tracks looped together and things like that. So we put it through a compressor. And we said that's better. Then we put that through a, a, a compressor, and that squished it up, and it sounded more like the original stuff. So we took a lot of trouble to do it, but I'm I'm still quite proud. You know the the. Um, the music for the the Russells was the only thing that came in under budget. <laughs> really, and it, and, it only, and it took ten days. 
Wow. From beginning to mixing and everything. Holy cow. The second one took even longer, <laughs> mind you. <laughs> I, that's an album I own that, I gotta say, if I didn't have the album... I wouldn't appreciate all the work you did nearly as much because it's meant to be, it's meant to feel like the Beatles are playing and not necessarily be ignored. You should be paying attention to get the joke, but if you weren't paying attention, it would go by as like, oh, they're practically playing oh, a Beatles yeah. song. No, but, but that's just a, a lot of, you know, quality is unnoticed in the great paintings, you know, things like that. It's the main narrative you get, you know, it's that's, that's the same of everything, you know. Um, but you have to take the care. I think you just have to put the, the the detail in there because even if no one's going to see it, it's still there. It's subliminal, you know. Yeah. Ah, oh, my goodness. And, and you know, it's so funny. You talk about what I'm, I have this weird interest in this one subgenre of comedy and of music, and that's fake bands. And there are a lot of fake bands who don't do what you did, which is like, I really like the movie That Thing You Do, and I actually quite like the music. Uh, it's pretty period accurate, but it all sounds too good. It's too, it's too clean, too CD friendly. Yeah. yeah. They just, yeah, I think you've got, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, when I was at art school, I used to paint, um, realistically, you know, I was not one of these kind of action painters or whatever I could, I could paint, um, you know, figuratively mm -hmm. and, and that requires a kind of anorak brain. Is oh no, that's, that could be better. Wipe it off. Do it again. You know. So I'm, I'm a, a little bit of a perfectionist in that way. Yeah. You know. Do you? Uh, I'm. So was there any question about you being the John character? Was that always going to happen? I I I didn't think of being any of them. I obviously wasn't going to be the drummer. Uh huh. Uh, um, but um, no, Eric just said, uh, "Well, Ricky, Ricky can be George. John is obviously, you know, Ringo, and um, you be John, and and I'll be Paul." Okay. I, I, I said, "Me, John, <laughs> no." Um, but I thought, "Oh well, let's get on with it." You know. <laughs> Who are you as a musician today? I mean, is there still? I mean, it feels like satire is in your blood, but I I don't want to assume that because I'm not you. Well, I think we touched on it earlier. I enjoy a good laugh, and but I also like I also think about things. I mean, you know, I mean, comedy is a serious business, mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, so I mean, I'm not in the business of manufacturing comedy for the sake of you know because I'm labelled a comic. Mm -hmm. I you know why I've got kept a low profile throughout my career is, is always deliberate. I don't have the ambition that some people in show business have to become stars or things like that. I like the toys that are show business, you know. And so mm. if, if I think of a funny song, I'll make it as funny as I can. And if I think it's a serious song, I will make sure the point gets across without, you know, overdoing it, you know. Or, or if... If I like not to make a serious point, I'll I'll do that. You know, I I, I really feel like either I my songs are for sitting around the campfire with other human beings, and uh, you know, not not for any marketplace particularly. Yeah. And uh, I'm, I'm I'm glad you know enough people um, see what I do and and get it. You know, but I'm certainly not. 
uh, I've never been in the business, you know, to sort of sharpen my elbows and join the <laughs> the mad rush for celebrity. <laughs> no. Oh, here's actually here's here's a good one uh, that I, a friend of mine and I are, are very curious about. So the Rutland Weekend Television album has never been released outside of uh, vinyl, if I'm not mistaken. Is it? What happens? How 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 do we get that thing out somehow? Do you know? Uh, I, don't, I don't know. It it was with BBC Records. Yeah. And I don't know how complicated all that is. And I know that Eric has since, you know, not really, he'd rather let Rutland be bygones, you know, because I, I, I think he's wrong because, I mean, yes, it's patchy. But it's like a lot of things from that time is patchy. Uh-huh. But it has moments of great brilliance. And I, I think it would be fun to have it out. And Yeah. Um, but again, the, the record was made quite quickly. I mean, but again, it's, it's fun. It is what it is, you know. I mean, they're like sketches, you know. They're, they're not complete. Um, they're not intended to be, you know, sort of Wagnerian opuses or, you know, <laughs> foot-tapping, you know, earworms. They're, they're what they are. Yeah. And, um, so I mean, if if it, if it comes out, that's fine. But, it, but I should also mention that the "All You Need Is Cash" album is coming out this October. Oh, good! Re-release with all the badges and buttons and posters and oh. uh, whistles and bells. That's um, amazing. So I, I, I'm kind of pleased about that because <laughs> I, I my we did a tour in May in the UK of the Ruttles with, with, with Barry as the only survivor from it. I'm working with younger people, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but we have a great time because it's, it's the fun of doing the songs and, and we had pretty much sell out audiences. And, and I think, and it's 40 years and it's so after 40 years, you know, you finally say, well, it's not about the trousers anymore. It is about the songs. <laughs> Oh, I love that so much. Um, well, uh, Barry was very when we we did the second album, Archaeology. Mm-hmm. He he he's I think he's one of the world's funniest men, you know, because um, he was answering questions from reporters and whatnot, and he said, "Yeah, well, it's not about the you know girls used to love us because of our trousers, but now they love us because we can do our own ironing." <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I um, here's the problem. There are so many. I, this is actually a, a, an okay way to end it before I let you, you know, talk about the stuff that matters so that people can actually pay you for your work, which you deserve. Um, it's I haven't had the opportunity to interview too many people who are at who are at the center of pop culture in this interesting way. I mean, you were involved in Python. You're the only other person to write a Python sketch on the show besides Douglas Adams, who wasn't one of the Pythons, correct? Yeah, that's right. Yes. So I I'm... wrote the I wrote the appeal on behalf of the very rich, which Graham did. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so good. And I mean, then I mean, we didn't even go we didn't even go over the Holy Grail, which I feel like uh, I, that as a as a nerd, I have not done my job if I don't ask you a little bit about Holy Grail and all the stuff you wrote for it. Well, the, 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 it's a, a bittersweet memories of that because. Um, Bearing in mind, it was made very, very cheaply, yes. even more cheaply than Rutland Weekend Television. And the clue is, you know, they didn't have horses. They had people banging coconuts. Mm-hmm. And so I think the music budget for the whole movie 
was £3,000. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, and I could do all the medieval stuff and make that sound authentic and stuff like that and get some choir people in. But when it came to a th Arthur's theme, I wrote this, and I was so pleased with it. It needed two French horns in harmony going, bum, 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 and a big orchestra going, da, 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 all heroic stuff, <laughs> you know. And, um, and I had 12 musicians. And it, and it sounded thin as washing up water. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and Terry was sort of almost in tears. I was saying, yeah, I'm so, I love all the tunes. But, you know, <laughs> everything is so cheap. We have to have something that sounds big. And so they had to use library music. Wow. But it was, it, it was not, you know, that, all that stuff is bum, 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 bum. It's fine, but it's just library music, you mm -hmm. know. And, uh, so, but I... I wholeheartedly agreed with him, you know, because you cannot, you know, strip something right back. You have to have something there to make an impact, you know. And so it did the job. <laughs> but I, I was slightly heartbroken. My 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 epic tunes didn't actually get to um, be fulfilled on that one. But it was a it was a it was a lovely project to do. It was. We were you know sitting up halfway up the hill in in chain mail which wasn't chain mail at all. It was mm -hmm. strings, silver, and you got wet feet and things like that. And sheep took an instant dislike to you. You know, they eyed in a callous way. And, uh, and, and we were sitting there one time, and I, I proposed this game of let's, let's decline the verb to sheep worry. And, um, and Cleese won it with the future pluperfect, so with... I am about to have been sheep worried. So that's that's the level of boredom waiting for the camera to set up again. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, at the very least, and I I I have to admit, I, I I know that people wouldn't necessarily want that to happen, but I would love to hear your score realized at some point. But the Sir Robin song on its own in your performance in in that even in just those few moments is pretty fantastic, and it stands out. Oh it's, yeah. That was a lot of fun. I wrote another song. There's two songs, actually. They've turned up in... They found them. Found them in a cupboard. One was called Arthur. King Arthur, the legendary king. Mm -hmm. You know, and he did this and he didn't have that. Didn't have a credit card or whatever. But, you know, that was quite amazing. So that's been... That's out there in the archive somewhere. And the other one was Run Away. You know, Run Away, Run Away. There's no need to stay. Run Away, Run Away. Discretion is okay. You can always borrow on the strength of tomorrow if you can't win the day. Can't win the day. Run away. <laughs> and, um, oh, that's, that's right. It's got some appalling lyrics. Um, <laughs> when, you're, when you're on the battlefield and virtue is a shield, the only thing to do is make a stand. But if certain death is near and you'd rather disappear, you can call upon your feet to lend a hand. <laughs> I think... <laughs> Terrible. That's a delight, though. Oh my God, the idea of of things to that could have been. Uh, it it is it's so funny too that you mentioned that that's library music. I think in a lot of people's brains, it's like, oh yeah, that's that's the music that's written for the film. So he, he like you say, it's not wrong. That 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 pomp uh, is 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 helpful. But I, again, I still I still would love to hear yeah. yours. Yeah, well, so would I, but I have no idea where the manuscript is. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, with your skill, you could probably do it from memory based on how, how you didn't listen to the Beatles and still recreated the Beatles in this ridiculously accurate way. I still don't understand it. I never will. 
Well, I, I, I did some, I did get, you know, some of the Python records. I did a, a, a fairy tale theme, which I'm, orchestrally and musically works really rather well. I'm rather mm. proud of that. But um, that's on an album somewhere. But, uh, no, I, I have to say, I've been incredibly lucky, you know, A, working with the Bonzo Dog Band and drifting, you know, through Do Not Just, Just Your Set to being seconded with Python. And then I, I had my own series on BBC Two, the Innis Book of Records. Yes. Moved the producers, Rutland Weekend Television. And um, in fact, uh, he said he he enjoyed putting pictures to music, and I, and I you know I've always liked putting pictures to music, and um, and I we said well what it should be is you know songs and pictures about people and things, and it should be relaxing like the old interval bit they used to put a bit of a couple of swans or somebody throwing a pot or something something. <laughs> That was different from somebody on with a celebrity host on high stools with a thousand light bulbs behind them, you know. <laughs> um, so after the lunch, I, I called him on my um, prototype mobile phone in those days. <laughs> I said, Ian Keel, the producer, I said, Ian, Ian, I've, I've thought of a title. And he said, uh, oh, what, what? And I said, Parodies Lost. I went... Oh, oh, I see. Yes, that's rather good. And I could tell you didn't like it. <laughs> but we called it Parodies Lost. And the, the first series, and I was dressed as you know, exotically on a hill somewhere, and a couple of elderly people with a fat dog came up the hill and said, what are you doing? So oh, we're making a programme for BBC. And he said, what's it called? I said, Parodies Lost. I beg your pardon. <laughs> Parodies Lost, you know. And I thought, oh, Ian's right, you know, it doesn't work. And I, and I saw a can of film with the tape round it, and it said, Paroids Lost. I thought, okay. But he always wanted to call it the Innis Book of Records, so that's what it was called in the end. <laughs> Isn't it? It's one of those moments where you, you're clever but wrong. Uh, I think we've all had those moments, but... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I personally no, I love know. it, but... But it doesn't matter, you know. It really doesn't matter. You have to be who you are and do what you can. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good lesson. That's a good lesson from uh, from a successful gentleman who has been involved in, I don't know, every major pop culture moment in you know in, for a very long period well, of time. I'm, I've rubbed shoulders with the mighty. <laughs> well, I mean, one one arguably, could, I, I would say that you are of the mighty yourself, only because you've if you if only because you've influenced me so heavily. Not as a musician, but I mean, so much of what you've done, I only realized later was like, oh, this guy was there. It's one of those things which, if you're young and not looking at credits, you don't pay attention, and then years later, you're like, oh, I really should have been paying closer attention. Uh, yeah, no, really. I think you, everyone's duty is to sort of try and enjoy themselves in life, and you know, fortunately, there's a lot of talented people out there that help us do it, and we've just got to, you know, <clears throat> you know, help them do it by sort of letting them know we like it or something like that. But um, it's it's great that you know you do things like this podcast, and it, it raises the awareness amongst you know us consumers of what it takes to actually make something that is actually meaningful in someone's life and it can make you smile just thinking of it you know i think it's you know it's a worthwhile thing to do i'll take that i'll take that that's that's the best compliment i've had in a long time um 
Let's talk about things that uh, that are out there that people can buy, where people can find you. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, there is uh, a campaign to fund one of the albums. That's right. Yes. Um, pledgemusic.com. Um, of course, you know, I don't have the link to hand, <laughs> uh, but I think if you, if you have, um, if you put in pledgemusic.com and then put Neil in this after a forward slash something will come up, but we've only just started it. And, uh, and Steve James is coming from Australia. Um, we're putting the old team back together to help me record it because I've been doing a lot of stuff, you know, pressing the red button myself and going back over there and sort of, it's not the same. You need somebody to, you know, so you can get in the flow of getting a performance on tape. And that's what I want to do. We're going to do the pre-production in a couple of weeks' time. Mm -hmm. I've got about 14 new songs that uh, arrange from the silly to the serious again. You know, I've got a song called Come Dancing, which is a kind of Mexican, well, it, it, it's set in Tierra del Fuego. You know, way down in Tierra del Fuego, there was a tearaway called Diego, but you could tell he was a loser by the bullet holes in his shoes. You know, um, so it's, a, it's a, just a silly ballad, in the, but it uses three, four, and lots of little musical jokes. And another one is called The Filthy Rich. And, you know, the same old chicken, the same old egg, the banker's bank and the beggar's beg. And it's, it's along that line, you know. And so it's a mix there, but I want to give every song a chance to do what it's supposed to be doing. And then when they're all done, we'll see how it sequences and what it turns into. But it might be just an audio version of the Innis Book of Records, a celebration of different styles of music, a celebration of humour, and a celebration of thinking about things. Mm -hmm. uh, is, and it's, this is called the new album, right? Is that that's the one that we should be looking for? I don't have a title for it yet. I, there are all sorts of silly ones, from <laughs> fake nuances to, <laughs> to well, a, a word I coined a while ago called surrealization. <laughs> I quite like, but there's you know there, all these things are in the hat at the moment. I think we have to make start make make the album uh, make the songs get them in the right key, the right tempo. And uh, take it from there. Well, if you, and, uh, I want to make the sure the funding get all the wonderful people I know who want to play on the album in the in the same room at the same time. That takes money. Sure. So the music the music industry is over as it was. You know, you're never going to get budgets off anybody anymore. Right. Um, it, it's it's been completely gutted by you know Silicon Valley and bent politicians basically. <laughs> But um, that's the way of the world, and um, we're left in our little cottage industries trying to do what we can. Uh, I will let people know that while we were talking, it is harder to find, but I did find it if you search for Pledge Music. But also, I made a link, so if you go to bit.ly forward slash Innis New Album, it'll take you right there. So that'll shorten it there for people. Go, Jason, where would, where would I be without people like you? <laughs> <laughs> so that'll be pretty quick. And there's some amazing stuff in here. I mean, I almost couldn't hear you speaking for a moment when I saw that there were some prop things on here that just made me panic that I don't have that kind of money. Uh, boy, oh boy. No, and I don't really want to sell them, but if I know. somebody's got that kind of money, I need that kind of money. <laughs> I, I get it. Oh my good God! Yeah, there are just some there. There are some Python-related things, and um, oh my goodness, a guitar, a signed guitar. Come on, not just a signed guitar. There's a lot of stuff on here. It's the canyons of your mind solo guitar. It's beautiful too, on its own. But yes, holy cow! Um, 
Uh, and you're on Twitter. I don't know how often you tweet. Um, yeah, I tweet. I mostly rant against Brexit because it's the most sen- well. It's a parallel insanity on this side of the water, but mm-hmm. it, it something is going on, and um, it's 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 rent seekers, the, the money makers who make money from money, and they don't care about the world one bit or the people in it, and uh, I, I get very hot under the collar about that, and uh, hopefully enough people can see that it is just a scam. Uh, they want to avoid European law so they can have their own tax avoidance offshore things. Yeah. Know? I mean, so Adam Smith pointed out, you know, the more you have property in private hands that, um, you know, people have to pay rent, they're not interested in making more people places to rent because they just want the rents to go up. Yep. It's that kind of world, and it's not good enough. Mm. Yeah. You know, and President Macron, I live in France now, and I, I, I really quite like him. I know he's, he's unpopular in certain ways, but he, when he came out with that lovely line when he came to Washington, the, there is no planet B. <laughs> right, right. Oh, God. It's it's uh, honestly that's uh, that's not the reason I follow you. But if I didn't know you, I think I would follow you for the, that reason alone, because you, you've got a lot of smart things to say. Um, so people should follow you there, but don't don't expect it to be nonstop comedy because we have learned Neil Innes is not nonstop comedy. He's a serious man as well. Well, I think yeah. It's, I mean, my my thing is that, you know Shakespeare wrote dramas and comedies, and um, you know because people can't be serious all the time and they can't be giggling all the time without being some sort of loony. <laughs> so I, really, that's what I think I'm doing. I'm like Shakespeare, but with better songs. <laughs> That's perfect. Um, well, thank you again. Please, you're welcome back anytime. Uh, I'm no pressure, but you are absolutely welcome back anytime. Maybe to talk about something, one album you grew up with, or something that maybe we could pick apart. But uh, what we want to do, Jason, it's a pleasure talking to you, and thank you for listening, everybody who is listening. Thank one you. One at a time. Thank you <laughs> so much, and thank you guys for listening, or you guy for listening. And as always, have a good thing. Comedy on Vinyl is a production of Stolen Dress Entertainment. It is produced by Mike Warden and is hosted and edited by Jason Klom. Our theme song was composed and performed by Richard Levinson. You can email us at podcast at comedyonvinyl.com. You can also send snail mail to Stolen Dress Entertainment, P.O. Box 805, Burbank, California, 91503. Subscribe to Comedy on Vinyl on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you can find podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and write us a review. It helps. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Comedy on Vinyl, or find everything in one place at ComedyOnVinyl.com. A major portion of Comedy on Vinyl has been underwritten by Stand Up Records. Please visit StandUpRecords.com for all your comedy needs and tune in to the new Stand Up Records channel available on the Roku, where you can also find select episodes of this podcast. Visit StolenDress.com to listen to our other podcasts, watch videos, and imbibe freely of our multimedia content going back 15-plus years. <laughs> 